The weird thing for me about writing is I would have no idea who I am if I wasn't writing. Do you ever have that feeling? It's important as a thought process for me. Yeah, um, sometimes I don't know what I'm thinking until I sit down and start writing. My first book felt cathartic. Yeah. I, I, but then I was done, and it feels like I want to go on and learn all these other things and be in these other worlds. You're listening to Jack Straw writer Lori Blauner. She talks with Writer's Program curator Matt Briggs about her motivation to write. And now you've gone from writing poetry to writing prose. Yeah. What has been some of the changes that you've noticed in that transition? It's like apples and oranges, really, um, uh -huh. between poetry and prose. Mm -hmm. Jim Welch was telling me that with a novel, you can just spread out. And that's kind of true. And I find prose much more explanatory than yes. Than poetry. Poetry, you're getting just the essence. You're taking it to the minimal. And you can express stuff without explaining it. Now you'll hear selections from Lori's live reading at Jack Straw Productions with an introduction by Matt Briggs. You know, I'd like to believe that in Seattle, there are dozens of writers like Lori Blauner hiding in their basements or, or wherever she hides. Lori has published five books of poetry and two novels. Her most recent collection of poetry is last year's This Could Be Yours. And uh, her most recent novel was just published. It's called Infinite Kindness. And it's a historical novel set in the 1860s London. And it's about euthanasia and madness. Lori Blauner. I'm going to be reading a few poems from the Jack Straw Anthology first, and then I'm going to read from my novel, Infinite Kindness. Horoscope. I'm taking the wonder out of wonderful, the gravity out of gravitational, and placing them where I can find them. It's a good day for escorting the remnants of my dreams to the door. I'm walking in an indifferent mall with its elaborately lit windows, its casual inquiries. The sound alone can tell me my future, forgotten forms, unmet terms, unreachable end, an echo following and following. My face repeats itself. I could have been with a man who breaks, scatters, sees something new, an eviction of matter, an ascetic argument. Instead, I hold the climate for my own discreet country, a new silk dress, an angel that goes nowhere, a device that sees in the dark. I must be taking a trip across an ocean soon. I'm giving up and giving in. I've never known so many strangers intimately. I've misread my life. I move inside myself more slowly, forfeiting uncertainty, gaining artifacts, I divine what is offered. I know that where I need to go still hasn't been discovered yet. The next poem's called The Most Wanted List, and it's a poem in which I imagine two policemen at a crime scene. There's nobody here. The empty apartment accordions into boxes that go on and on. Blankets huddling on the bed are warm. Chairs kneel in disarray. Windows are left open in their hurry. 
I think I see you against a wall. The give and take of lovely shadows, life of the party. Forget her, my partner says, but my hands don't know what to do. I want to explain that where I've touched you, there is no trace. We leave nothing behind. I reach through your cheek and feel a bullet hole, plaster crumbling along your spine. You laugh at my face, throw your head back, thinking about dampness and who will come through the door. My dreams are always the same, a sliver in my eye that grows into something enormous pinning me. I shun light. I learn to cheat time, a handcuffing. Your heart does somersaults to escape. My partner doesn't understand that the beautiful can't give us enough. Swallowed, and this is a modern version of Jonah and the Whale. There was no reason for continuing, but he had to. Past the teeth arranged like ready fingertips, the tongue tipping him over into the new language of mammalian throat. Past the cave-like stomach, the sleek belly, to who knows where. All sounds were silhouettes. He wanted to undo the embroidery of the smooth skin, make it into little clouds from the inside out. A heart fluttered overhead somewhere. It was spring outside. Newly green leaves were growing bigger, flowers spilling like laughter into hills, ready to tell their true names. Colors dangled over grass. He had time. Everything churned, working its way around him as if building a house. He closed his eyes, imagined someone stumbling onto a rotten pumpkin in a field, sinking into it. He needed to let himself go. We're all blood, bone, and flesh, he thought. And slowly, slowly he came out of it. Time cobwebbed, sticky and difficult. He found himself in an alley surrounded by empty bottles, peanut shells, weeds, his crushed pack of cigarettes. Air muffled the buildings. Moisture created cracks in the bricks. His mouth was left open as though it had inspired a long hiss of flight. Okay, I'm going to read the first few pages of my new novel called Infinite Kindness. At the Thompson House, London, 1867. After I killed him, he rose up in my dreams again and again, my first time, for the first one, but not after that. His face loomed cloudy, indistinct, Martin. I still remembered his wide nose, the terse lips in my dreams. He floated over a straw mattress. Nearby, I held a knife high, bringing it down gently upon another boy's sternum, the surgeon's job. In my dreams, the blood that was released arced in the air, a thin red waterfall that never seemed to end. I awoke to Martin's white body, enclosed in a uniform, the hovering face. Once it had not been a dream. His name was Martin Farland. The first thing he said to me was, please kill me. I nodded, ignoring him. Some men groaned in the background. My nurse's cap was tipped to the side. The day was already long. I probably sighed because he repeated himself, 
please kill me. The first one. He was watching the boy next to him, blood pooling at his ribs, a dirty red shirt, an amputation of the arm. The way Martin clutched his stomach, I thought cholera or dysentery. That faraway look in his eyes. The terrible smell all around us, blood and sewers and everything else the body offered. A strip of light from the sealed, frosty window alighted upon his cheek, a bandage. I knew he did not have long, this body that haunted my dreams. I barely saw him, one face among so many. I do not have anyone. His plea was frozen in the air between us. I nodded. Why not? Men I did not know were dying by the minute. My cap slipped off my head, disappeared among the straw mattresses, the barely visible floor, the dying men. I felt that fabric of sunlight upon my back, warming my spine. I took the photograph he offered me, slipping it into my pocket. I do not have anybody else, he said. Thank you. That was how I remembered it, my first one. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Jack Straw Productions as part of the Jack Straw Writers Program. The 2007 curator of this program is Matt Briggs. Music performed by Sean Osborne and recorded through the Jack Straw Artist Support Program. Producer is Jenny Cecil Moore. Recording engineers are Mo Preventure and Tom Stiles. Arts Program's manager is Van Deep. Narrator is Michelle Kazak. And executive director of Jack Straw Productions is Joan Rabinowitz. The Jack Straw Writers Program is made possible with support from the Paul G. Allen Family Foundation, Arts Fund, Poncho, the Mayor's Office of Arts and Cultural Affairs, Four Culture King County Lodging Tax Fund, the Washington State Arts Commission, the National Endowment for the Arts, and individual contributors. All of the writers heard in this series are published in the Jack Straw Writers Anthology, available for purchase and featured online at jackstraw.org. Thank you for listening.